Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew, the fourth chapter. For those of you that are visiting with us, we like to just go right through books of the Bible here at Calvary Chapel. So we're in the book of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, the fourth chapter this morning. We've been talking about the great theme of this gospel, which is Christ the King. Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, descended from the line of Abraham. And it's sort of like the song that Chris Falson sang back in the early 90s. We need a king who is faithful, who's worthy to be praised. We need a king full of mercy, mercy and grace. We need a king full of wisdom, power, and might. We need a king who goes by the name of Jesus. We need a king, and we need specifically King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's our text this morning. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. Now last week we looked at how that the sinlessness of the king was proved by the fact that he overcame all of the temptations of the devil to disobey the will of the Father. And we, we saw that Jesus withstood those temptations of the devil in the wilderness for 40 days. And he was fast during, during those 40 days and ate no food And when he was at that place of being hungry, at the end of that 40-day fast, the devil came to him with the final of the temptations, the culmination of all of the temptations, and Jesus withstood those temptations, using the word of God and depending upon his relationship to his Father. So that's where we were last week, and so Jesus has proved to be the king, the sinless king, because... He obeyed the will of his father and did not succumb to the satanic temptations. Now we come this morning to another section where we see the uh, influence of the king growing and increasing. And so we see the headquarters of the king, where he made his headquarters in the early days of his ministry. We see the message of the king, the subjects of the king, who would follow him, and then the growing influence of the king throughout the area of Israel. Now the thing that we need to note as we come to verse 12 is that this event, when Jesus heard that John, his cousin, John the Baptist, had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. There was a change that took place when Jesus heard that John had been imprisoned. And if we want to look at the chronology of the Gospel of Matthew, here's a good place to do it. Because up until this point, although it doesn't tell us here in Matthew, it's very clear when we compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke with the Gospel of John, that Jesus had already been well into his ministry for almost a year by the time Matthew 4.12 occurs. In other words, John was put in prison after Jesus had been ministering for almost a year. And during that initial year, lots of things had gone on. John had testified about Jesus. John had shown others 
that Jesus is the Messiah. The first disciples met Jesus down in the area of the Jordan. The first miracle occurred. Jesus turned water into wine in the city of Cana. The temple was cleansed for the first time. Nicodemus met Jesus at night during that first year. Many disciples were baptized in Judea during that time, and the disciples asked John about Jesus and, and so on. And then eventually Herod imprisoned John the Baptist and had him killed. So all that happened during Jesus' first year, and Jesus is basically already been introduced to his disciples, but they hadn't yet made that commitment to follow him. And so the public ministry of the Lord, as G. Campbell Morgan gives it to us in his great commentary on the Gospel of John, was divided into three periods. The first period began when he was baptized, and that period went all the way up until the time when John was imprisoned. The second part, or the second period of Jesus' ministry, began when John was put in prison and extended all the way up until the time that Jesus introduced himself as Messiah and publicly confessed his Messiahship at Caesarea Philippi on his way to the cross in Jerusalem. And then the third period of his ministry was the final six months, which led to his death for our sins at Calvary. So there are the periods, the three sections of Jesus' ministry, and this first period lasted for about a year. That's important to note, as we'll see as we move on in the text. And so when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. So where is that? He went up into the north, the area of Galilee, up there uh, in the northern part of Israel. Now, Galilee was a place that was removed from the religious center of Jerusalem, of Israel, which was Jerusalem. The temple was in Jerusalem. The focus of first century Judaism was Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't start his ministry there. He didn't focus on Jerusalem. He went away from Jerusalem into the north in Galilee, where there wasn't that kind of religious pressure and where there wasn't the domination of the Pharisees and their version of religion, and the Sadducees and their version of religion, and the various sects of Judaism. He went into Galilee where they were less familiar with that, and where he was able to just sort of introduce what his mission was freely, without interruption, from the powers that be, from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court, from those things that would hinder his ministry, were he to begin his ministry in the area of Jerusalem. And so it's very significant that he departed to Galilee. Now, in Galilee, he went to Nazareth, his hometown. Matthew doesn't tell us anything about his time in Nazareth. It just tells us in verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea. And so Jesus did spend some time in Nazareth. Luke chapter 4, if you're cross-referencing and studying, records what happened when he was in Nazareth. He was in the synagogue reading from the prophet Isaiah. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prisons to those that are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, handed it to the synagogue attendant, and sat down, and everyone was watching him. 
Why did he stop there? Why did he roll up the scroll at that portion of the reading? And the reason is because the very next phrase says, and the day of vengeance of our God. And Jesus didn't come in his first coming to bring the day of vengeance of our God. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives and preach the year of Yahweh's favor. And we've been in that year for 2,000 years. The year of Yahweh's favor. It's lasted a long time. And so that was the purpose of Jesus' first coming. And so he stopped his reading. And then in the resulting confrontation between those in his hometown of Nazareth, he was eventually led out to the edge of a hill and he was going to be thrown down and killed by his own countrymen, his own city uh, you know, uh, friends and people he had grown up with. But he just passed right through that crowd and went his way. And then from there he went to Capernaum. And so that's where he is. Now what about Capernaum? And why was that an important place for Jesus to go? Let's read in verses 13 and following. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, and the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the, Gal of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So one of the reasons it was important for Jesus to go to Capernaum is that it was a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. The prophecy of Isaiah of chapter 9 tells us that the Messiah would come out of and minister strongly in the region of Capernaum and the region of Galilee in the northern part of Israel. So that was one reason. But also it was a place that was a key place for ministry because it was at a crossroads. Capernaum was a city at a crossroads. It was a large fishing village. It was a busy trading center. It was right at, on the great highway called the Via Maris which connected Egypt all the way to everything to the east and to the north of Israel. This is where the tax booth was, where the customs taxes were collected, where Matthew was the superintendent of the whole taxation business that was taking place there. So it was a very key place, and lots of travelers came by in either direction, going to Egypt, going from Egypt, all the way around the areas of Israel, and that's where Jesus set up his operation. You can go to Capernaum today. If you go to Israel, there's the remains of the city. You find a remains of a synagogue there that dates back to about the 5th century A.D. It's not the same synagogue that Jesus would have preached in, but many believe it was the same site of the synagogue that Jesus preached in. And it's very fascinating to be in the remains of the city of Capernaum. But it was a place that was strategic. And what was going on there is that the people who sat in darkness saw a great light. They saw Jesus, the light of the world, and they saw a great light because of it. A lot of things happened in Capernaum. The daughter of Jairus was raised there. An evil man, a spirit was driven out of a man in the synagogue. There was a paralyzed man that was healed as he was let down on the roof, and uh, his sins were forgiven. Uh, disciples caught fish outside of Capernaum in a very miraculous way. 
Jesus paid the tribute tax through a fish that Peter had caught in the Sea of Galilee right there at Capernaum. And a lot of other things took place in the area of Capernaum. They saw great light. Now later when we get to Matthew chapter 11, we'll see that Jesus will rebuke the city of Capernaum and other cities like it because even though they had seen a great light, they hadn't responded. Excuse me, they had not responded to it. They had not listened to what they had heard and they had not followed what they'd seen. All the light didn't do much good if they didn't believe it and didn't obey it and they didn't obey it. And so Jesus pronounced a more severe judgment upon the city of Capernaum because they had rejected the light they'd been given. Sometimes I wonder about that sort of thing as it relates to the United States where we have had amazing understanding and amazing revelation and illumination given to us. The Bible taught so many different places. We've got the national and local media that carry Bible studies and good, solid preaching of the gospel. Billy Graham used to be on the air during every one of his crusades. The entire nation heard the gospel preached. I mean, amazing stuff that has happened. And then, of course, the Internet itself, which carries more and more information. And we have seen a great light. And even our nation's history has been uh, participating in, in the light of God as he's worked to work in the United States and bless us with blessings beyond even our capacity to, to know and understand. Yet, we have forsaken the Lord. And we have turned our backs on him. And you know, you just wonder if the Lord pronounced the severe judgment that he did upon Capernaum because of their rejection of him, what would be his assessment of us? Don't ever forget to pray for a spiritual revival and to be part of that revival by the way you live and the way I live for Jesus. Amen? Lots of things going on there, and it's wonderful, isn't it? Jesus comes into a place, and now they have seen light. Well, his message is given to us in this part of his ministry in verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Does that sound familiar? It was the same message that John the Baptist preached. When he preached, he would say the same thing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When John said it, he was looking forward to the king coming onto the scene, King Jesus. When Jesus said it, he's announcing himself. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is here. It's time to prepare. Now the way to prepare for the kingdom of heaven in those days is the same as it is today. And that is to repent. To change our mind. Instead of going the way we've been going, to change our mind and go the way God wants us to go. To make a decision. Now nobody has the power to make the changes that are needed to be righteous. But we do have the power to change our thinking to want to make the changes that are needed to be righteous. And once a person repents and really seeks the truth and wants Jesus to be in his or her life, then the power of Jesus comes into that life and he enables us to carry out his plan of repentance in our hearts. We begin to live what our minds have told us must take place. 
And that's by the power of Jesus. That's why it's not necessary for somebody to completely clean up their life before they come to Jesus. Because it's impossible to completely clean up the life before one comes to Jesus. But what is necessary is for the mind to say, I want my life to be different. I want to live the way Jesus wants me to live. I don't want to live the way I've been living any longer. And so I come to Jesus and then what he does is he not only forgives me, but gives me the power to live the way he wants me to live. And it all came from him. So there's the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the only way to enter this kingdom of heaven is through the new birth. Jesus made this very clear in John chapter 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. John 3, 5. Have to be born into this kingdom. No one is a natural citizen of this kingdom. In fact, we're unnaturally alienated from this kingdom. We're naturally alienated, unnaturally connected to it. We need to be born again in order to enter into the kingdom of God. And how does that happen? That comes through placing specific and personal faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ at Calvary. When someone understands that Jesus took their place at Calvary, and a great exchange was made, he took our sin upon himself so we could be given his forgiveness and righteousness. When someone believes that message and receives that personally, then that's when a person can be born again. And that's the only way to enter into this kingdom. A lot of people go to church. And a lot of people are part of regular spiritual practices, even in churches. Even in evangelical churches. And a lot of people attend regularly and perhaps even tithe their income and do some of the uh, ministries of the church and even perhaps receive communion on a regular basis. But that's not what makes somebody a Christian. The question is, are you born again? Do you have God's life in you? And has there, as a result of God's life in you, been a change which is noticeable not only to you, but also to others? Jesus said about the new birth, the wind blows where it wills. And you can hear the sound of it, but you can't tell from where it's coming or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, when the wind blew the other day, we didn't know where it came from. We didn't know where it was going. We didn't know how long it was going to last. But after it was over with, you sure could tell that it had been here. And that's the truth of the new birth as well. We don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit comes into a person's life or all the dynamics and all of those issues. It's a sovereign act of God as a response to faith in Christ. But what we do know is that there is a change. If someone doesn't experience a change, which results in assurance of salvation, which results in a changed life, changed attitudes, changed behavior, which results in others saying, boy, what happened? You're different. If that hasn't happened, then a person has a legitimate reason to question whether or not they've been born again. So the question is, are you born again? And if you know you've been born again, rejoice in it and praise the Lord for the salvation that he's given you and continue to trust in the Spirit of God and his work in you. But if you're not sure, make sure. 
Because your commitment to a church doesn't matter to God. What does matter is do you have the life of his son? Do you have Jesus? Is he in your life? And is he making that kind of a change? That's what's important. It's the most vital question that could be asked as we ask questions of ourselves. And he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The changing of the mind, leading to faith in Christ, and that faith in Christ then produces the new birth, and that is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's the message, and isn't it interesting that Jesus preached the same message as John the Baptist. And so many have pointed out from both of those instances that the first word of the gospel is actually the word repent. J. Edwin Orr, if you're familiar with his writings or his speaking, he was one of the great church historians and especially focused on the studies of spiritual and Christian revivals throughout the centuries. Fascinating studies. If you ever get a chance to read or listen to any of J. Edwin Orr's studies, it's just amazing as he recounts the stories of revivals, how they took place, when they took place, the conditions of the city or the country in which the revival took place before there was a revival and then how things changed after there was a revival. Amazing stuff. But he does a whole study, and if you can find this, it's worth listening to. It's entitled, The First Word of the Gospel. And this is what he's arguing for. He's arguing for the fact that the first word of the gospel, according to John the Baptist and Jesus, is the word repent. And he, and he shows what that means. It's a masterful study, one of those can't-leave-home-without-it kinds of studies to listen to. J. Edwin Orr. Just do a Google search and you'll find it. In fact, I think David Guzik has it on his site, his website, EnduringWord.com. Is that the URL, Bill? Yeah, EnduringWord.com. So we come to verse 18, and we see the subjects of the king. Who would follow him? And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Then immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, the thing to note about this, as far as the chronology is concerned, is that they'd been around Jesus and exposed to Jesus for almost a year. By this time, all of these men had seen most of the miracles that he performed in Capernaum. And they'd heard his teaching in the synagogues. In other words, they'd have plenty of evidence and plenty of time, plenty of information at their disposal to decide when Jesus said, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. They had plenty of evidence to help them decide whether or not they were going to actually do that. When we just read the Gospel of Matthew without the cross-references in John and without the chronology, you think that, you know, Jesus bursts onto the scene 
And then five minutes later, he's in Capernaum, and he sees Peter and James and John and, and uh, Andrew, and he says, follow me, and they immediately leave everything and follow him at a whim. What a massive and major commitment. Just so sudden. But it wasn't quite so sudden. They'd had time. They had been under the influence of the ministry of John the Baptist. John pointed to Jesus. Then they saw Jesus and some of his miracles in Capernaum. And so they had the evidence. They had that which was on the outside. They'd had plenty of time to decide. And that's, I think, important. Because the Lord doesn't intend to cause us to check our brains at the door when we come into faith in Christ. And he doesn't expect it expects us to do it on the basis of just blind faith, like this is what we should do. Somebody told us we should do it. But he expects us actually to check him out, to find out who he is. What did he do? What's he like? What's the proof? What's the evidence? And we have the same evidence at our disposal through eyewitness testimony and solid history and biblical prophecy that the apostles did in the first century. And we check Jesus out. Who is he? What did he do? What did he teach? What's the evidence for his Messiahship? How do we know he's the Son of God? How do we know he can forgive sins? The Lord wants us to check these things out. And they did, these disciples, and they decided to follow him. As a result, they left everything. It was worth it. Once you meet a man like this, once the Son of God is revealed in the heart... What else is there left in this life other than to follow him? That doesn't mean everybody leaves their vocation. That's not what God calls everybody to do. But he did call them. We need to be willing to do whatever he wants us to do. Whether it's leave our vocation or remain in our vocation, or whether it's to do this or that or live here or live there, it's really his call at that point. And if we believe that he's worthy of that kind of obedience then we should give it to him. And why wouldn't he be worthy of that kind of obedience? Isn't he the son of God? Absolutely he is. This last week I was reading an article about the new phenomenon, pro football. His name is Tim Tebow. I don't know how many of you have heard about Tim Tebow. Probably a lot of people have. Tim Tebow uh, is regarded by most NFL experts, and especially retired Hall of Fame quarterbacks, that he is not fit to play the position in a National Football League professional team. His mechanics are unorthodox. He doesn't quite understand or play the quarterback position in the way that the experts think he should. But all he does, as he's finally gotten a chance to be the starting quarterback for the Denver Broncos, all he does is lead men to victory. And so they've now won so many games under his leadership that now they're tied for first with the Raiders for the first place in the Western Division of the American Football Conference. That's amazing. But the experts said, well, you know, this shouldn't happen because he doesn't know how to play quarterback. Well, he's winning. Well, there was an article called The People Who Hate Tim Tebow. So I wanted to read this article. Why, first of all, I want to know, why, did, why, does it, why would anybody hate Tim Tebow? The thing about him, he's a committed Christian. He's the real deal. 
missionary growing up, son of missionary parents, walks the walk by every account. Anyone you talk to, teammate, friend, neighbor, parent, family member, everybody says the same thing. He's the real deal. He just lives what he says and he says what he lives. And so just the fact that there are people who hate Tim Tebow is an amazing, amazing thing. So I wanted to read the article. And in the article, the author, who's named Chuck Klosterman, talked about the nature of faith. And this is where I'm getting to my point here. Because obviously Tim Tebow has faith, and the author gave him credit for the faith that he has and believes that it's a good thing. But then he commented his own view of what faith is. And he says, quote, The only time faith seems negative is when it's prefaced by the word blind. In other words, when you put the word blind in front of faith, it seems to be a negative thing. But blind faith, he says, is the only kind of faith there is. In order for someone's faith to be meaningful, it has to be blind. Wrong. That's not true. This isn't blind faith. Christianity is not blind faith. Blind faith is you close your eyes and you close your ears and you want nothing to do with evidence or truth. That's not what the Christian faith is all about. Christian faith is nothing like blind faith. It's not like watching, walking off the edge of a cliff hoping that there's somebody down there to, to uh, catch you but having no realistic evidence to think that there will be. That's blind faith. Christianity is not like that at all. We are putting our confidence in someone who triumphed over death, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and then pulled it off, and who is the fulfillment of hundreds of predictions written hundreds of years earlier by the Old Testament prophets, and who was testified to by many eyewitnesses who had nothing to gain by saying he was the Son of God, but in fact, in reality, had everything to lose, namely their own lives, by adhering to this idea that he's the Son of God, and many of them did lose their own lives. That's the best kind of eyewitness, the one that has no personal stake in it other than their own life. And they did. I mean, in other words, we've got all kinds of evidence. It's not blind faith. When you read a statement like that or when somebody tells you something like that, kindly and respectfully but boldly, tell them what the real deal is. No, that's not right. There is a faith that is not blind faith. It does take faith, but in that sense, faith takes on a different meaning. Faith is the commitment of trust to something that we have come to believe is true and that there's evidence for it. Blind faith is walking off the edge of a cliff hoping that there's something there at the bottom to catch us. That's not what Christianity is. We need to understand the difference between the two. And these disciples, they did not exercise blind faith. They saw who Jesus was and they believed that he was worthy to be obeyed and followed. And I love verse 19. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so what was Jesus' mission with his disciples for those three and a half years? It was to make them fishers of men. And by the time he rose from the dead and departed and went to his Father in heaven, they were almost ready 
They were really, really close to being fishers of men, right at the edge of being completely competent. But the thing that they were missing is they didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit operating in their life. They had to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. And once they received the power of the Holy Spirit, everything Jesus had taught them, and all that they had observed, and the authority that he had given them, it came back to them. And now once again, they're able to move forward, and now they were fishers of men. The thing about fishermen is they know where to fish, and they know what bait to use, They know what techniques to use. And they know how to land the fish once the fish has been hooked. And that's all sort of part of it, isn't it? I mean, going where the need is. Finding out where the people are that are vulnerable and are open to the truth. That's an important part of fishing for men. But Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. Meaning, I will give you the heart for it. I will give you the vision for it. I will give you the how-to. And so as they followed him and as they watched him, they watched him as he fished for men. They watched him with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. How he so tenderly but truthfully wooed this woman into believing that he's the Messiah. They watched as he handled the leper there in Matthew's gospel in chapter 8 where this poor, pitiful leper was there in the synagogue, and Jesus actually reached out and touched the man and healed him. They saw that he was willing to go beyond all the social and religious barriers in order to touch human beings. They heard what he said when they wanted to call down fire from heaven and wipe out the Samaritan village that didn't want to receive them. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit... You are of. The Son of Man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. They heard that message. You see, they got the the gospel message down, and they learned how to be fishers of men, and so they went out and they did it themselves after his resurrection and after Pentecost. The Lord's called us to do the same. We're to all be fishers of men in one way or another, to influence others toward faith in Jesus Christ. And how does that happen? How do I become a fisher of men? How can I be good at it? It's only one way. Follow Jesus. Follow him. Imitate him. Watch him. Stay close to him. Let him influence us. And as that happens, we learn how to become fishers of men. And that's what we need to be because there are so many that are in darkness. Just like in the days of Jesus in Capernaum, there are so many who are in darkness who need the light. And the thing about the darkness that people are in is that they're being deceived into thinking that they're actually in the light. But it's darkness. Darkness everywhere. The absence of light is the definition of darkness. And unless somebody has Jesus, they're in darkness because he's the light of the world. That's the bottom line. And so now they're following him. In verse 23, it talks about the ongoing power and influence in the early part of Jesus' ministry. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases 
and torments on those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So he went about all Galilee, again away from the Jerusalem epicenter of religion, into an area where he'd be free to move. What was he doing there? He was preaching, it tells us in verse 23. He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, and he was healing all kinds of diseases among the people. And this became the divine pattern, preaching and healing. It became the divine pattern for the disciples to follow. Mark chapter 16, These signs shall follow those who believe. In my name they shall cast out demons. They shall heal the sick. They shall speak with new tongues, etc. It became the pattern for the disciples when Jesus sent them out on their preaching missions. As you go, preach the kingdom of God. Raise the dead. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Uh, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. It became the pattern for them. It's the pattern for us today as well. We preach and we heal. We preach and we help people become delivered. And how does that happen? That happens by faith. We just do it by faith. And it's important, just as important today as it was then. Now the fame that he had as a result of this grew and grew and grew, verse 24. And the result was that all the sick people who had all kinds of ailments and demon-possessed people as well, they came to Jesus, they flocked to him in droves because the word got out about who he was and about what he was doing. So they came to him. And so what did he do? Well, he would heal them. And he would cast out their demons. And he would cure their epilepsy. And he would cure their paralysis. He would minister to every single one of them. Now the thing that we need to understand is this miraculous activity, it was not an end in and of itself. Jesus didn't perform the miracles as ends within themselves, but as means to an end. The end was personal faith in Christ to follow him. The miracles or the signs were part of the means to that end, part of the way he chose to get there. In fact, there were problems that resulted from the fact that he healed so many people. They began to follow him for that reason. They wanted what he had for them. He was giving them a better life making their life more comfortable. I don't have to deal with this ailment anymore. I don't have to deal with this sickness anymore. I don't have to deal with this demon anymore. I've got a better life. And once they had their better life, that was all they needed. They didn't need anything else from Jesus, so they wouldn't follow him. Because they really didn't understand who he was. And that's the danger in this sort of miraculous ministry that Jesus had is that there would be followers of his who were following him only because of what he was able to give them or what they were able to get out of it by following him. In John chapter 6, when he healed the fi- or fed the 5,000, if you remember that story, and the multitudes came and followed him and were pursuing him as a result of that. And he said, you seek me 
not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You need to learn to seek the bread which comes from heaven. You need to learn to seek the bread of life. And I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never hunger, and he who follows me will never thirst. Jesus was always wanting them to come to him so that they would know and follow him, not just the things that he was doing. It became such a problem, this multitude problem, that he eventually had to change his teaching style because of it. Because they had all these people that were so caught up in the excitement. Jesus mania was everywhere. They were so caught up in the excitement that they weren't hearing anything that he said. They weren't understanding it. They thought that because they were part of the crowd, they thought that because they were part of the hysteria and the excitement, that they must be in. We got it. We're part of the group. Look at all this activity. This is great. We, We must have the real deal. But they didn't have the real deal. And so he changed his teaching method. And he began to speak to them in parables. Little short stories that had a point to them, but you really had to search it out to figure out what the point was. And the very first parable, if you remember, was a sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed his seed, some of the seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and ate it up. And other seed fell on rocky soil, and when the sun came up, because the seed had no depth of earth, the sun scorched the seed, and it became unfruitful. Other seed was thrown in among thorns, and it grew up together with the thorns and choked out. Uh, the thorns choked out the seed so that it became unfruitful. And then the other seed fell on good ground where it bore good results, 30 and 60 and 100 fold. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that was the end of his sermon. That was all he said. He gave them no interpretation. He gave them no help in understanding it. Nothing. He just walked away. Now if you're Fred and Mary in that crowd that day listening to that sermon, if you were really hungry for truth, you'd be saying this. You'd say, what? Why did he just tell us that? These are all self-evident facts of farming. What does this story mean? We don't get it. We got to find out what this means. We got to ask somebody who knows what this is all about. What is Jesus talking about here? What is this seed with these different kinds of soils? What's it talking about? What's he referring to? But you know that a lot of Fred and Mary's just went home and said, wasn't that a great meeting today? What a fantastic message, message about seeds. Didn't know that about seeds. And that was it. But the disciples, you see, the followers, they came to Jesus and they wanted to know, what's the explanation? And Jesus said, to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to those that are outside it's not been given. Because seeing they see and they don't perceive, and hearing they hear but they don't understand, their heart has become hard. And they can't see and they can't hear. 
He's referring to the multitudes. But the disciples who came and said, what does this mean? What's going on? What are you talking about? He gave them the interpretation of the parable. So he had to change his teaching methodology because of the insensitivity and the spiritual dullness of their hearts. And how that happened? Well, they got caught up in the spiritual hysteria of the moment and were focused on the miracles and not on Jesus himself. You say, well, why does this matter to you and me today? Well, it matters a lot because you know what? Even as Christians... We can develop certain expectations of Jesus. The way that Jesus ought to act in relationship to my life. I mean, these are the things that Jesus should do if he really is a good Jesus. If he's a good Jesus and he's a tame Jesus, and he's a loving Jesus, then this is how he's going to act toward me. I'm going to have this kind of a house. I'm going to have this kind of a job. I'm going to have this kind of income. These are the way my kids are going to be. This is where I'm going to live. These are the amounts of hours I'm going to have for recreation and fun and enjoyment. And I've got it all laid out, all the expectations. This is the way my relationships are going to work out. And we get real specific sometimes in the ways we think Jesus is going to work for us. But we're creating a plastic version of Jesus that may not exist. It may not be the real Jesus in my life. His job isn't primarily to make me happy. He doesn't have a job. He's Jesus. He's the Son of God. His purpose is to be exactly what he is. He's Lord and Savior. Our role is to follow him and let him call the shots and realize that if great stuff happens, it's his grace breathing on us. And if stuff that doesn't seem so great happens, it's his grace breathing on us. And he's faithful. And he will work all things together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Right? That's what we know about him. So our purpose is to know him. And can we be like Paul the Apostle that said, I want to know him. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection, but I also want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. I don't want to know him halfway. I don't want to know him just in the power of his resurrection. I want to know him also in the fellowship of his sufferings. That's a complete knowledge of Jesus. And that's what he was after, was those kinds of followers. And the kind of following of Jesus that is just following him because of the miracles is shallow. It won't last. And when a person follows Jesus because of the miracles, he sets up expectations about the way it's supposed to be. And then the way it's supposed to be doesn't happen. Then they get disappointed in Jesus. But really the Jesus they're disappointed in is the one they made up in their minds, not the real Jesus. That's why we study the Bible. We want to know who the real Jesus is. We want to get the real scoop on who Jesus really is and what he's really like. That's the benefit of Bible study, that we might know him. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Well, my conclusion this morning of this message is we're done. So let's pray. Thank you, King Jesus, for all that you are and all that you do. And for us to call you king is a great honor because you've called us into this kind of fellowship and relationship with you. There is no one like you. You're the one that is able to take our 
fledgling faith and make it into great faith. You're the one that is able to take the pains and difficulties of this life, of which there are many, and turn them into gold. Lord, you're the one that's able to bless us beyond our imagination. And you're the one that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think, according to your power that works in us. You are all of these things, and we love and honor you for it. Make us, Lord, as you made these men. You took ordinary men, Peter, James, John, Andrew, and others like them, and you made them into fishers of men to catch people for the kingdom of God. Lord, if you could do it for them, ordinary men, you can do it for us, ordinary men and women. So we ask you to do that, Lord. And we pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here this morning it is not absolutely sure that they are born again, that they have the life of Jesus, that they've been changed by the gospel message, and that Jesus has forgiven them of everything they've ever done. We pray that your Holy Spirit would bring any of those individuals into the kingdom of God. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work now to bring conviction and to convince people of their need for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, so much. As we pray, how many this morning would say, I don't know if I'm born again. I, I've never really received Christ, or I did receive Christ, or prayed to receive Christ years ago, but I don't know if it took hold. I don't know if it really did anything. I don't know if I really am a child of God or born again. If that's you and you want to do something about that this morning, would you raise your hand right where you're seated? I'd like to pray for you this morning and pray with you. And you can ask the Lord Jesus to be who he is in your life and to do for you what he wants to do in your life. Anybody this morning, you've never made that commitment, but you want to today. You see, God loves you. He really does. And he doesn't want you to perish. He doesn't want you to live a life that is meaningless. And he doesn't want you to have to spend your eternity separated from him. So he's done something about it. God so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus, to die on a cross that you might have eternal life. But you've got to receive that gift. It's a gift of God. You must receive it. You must reach out your heart and reach out your hand and receive the gift, just like any gift. And you have to receive it by faith. How many this morning would receive that gift by faith right now? Anyone? Even anyone listening to this later, Father, we pray that you'd use your word and this invitation to bring people into the kingdom of God. We thank you so much for your faithfulness and for the gospel message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.